Now, we've been looking at the social context of crime, where places with a lot of crime come from. What are the conditions that make it so likely that some places are going to be racked by violence and where people might seriously think of calling in the National Guard to patrol the streets? And we started by looking hard at poverty because poverty is a part of that context. It's a big part of it. We've been asking, what do we mean by poverty and just how big a problem is it and for whom? And if people are poor, why are they poor? We saw that it's a big problem. It's one that affects many, many people in America. It's not just the problem of a small, isolated underclass. It's a problem for all racial and ethnic groups, a problem that's very widespread in America, though it's worse and more concentrated among some people than others. Now, last time we were looking at this issue globally, looking at the poverty problem in our country in comparison with other countries. And we saw that, at least measured against other advanced societies of the world, we come out badly. We saw that there's more than one way to measure poverty internationally, but how we, but however we measure it, we are among the, the advanced industrial countries with the highest proportion of poor people, even though overall we're one of the richest countries in the world. It's a strange and troubling paradox. Now, of course, there are a lot of countries that are a lot poorer than us, but they're not advanced industrial societies. They're in the developing world. If you go to parts of Latin America and Africa and Asia, you'll see levels of poverty that you don't see here. But those aren't rich countries. What makes the U.S. unique is that we're a rich country with a lot of very poor people and very poor places. A country where a lot of people are excluded from the kind of life other people can lead. And this is a huge problem from the point of view of understanding crime because it creates a situation that we know, from criminological theory anyway, that is very volatile. You've got a lot of people who don't have much, and they get to look out across the freeway or on the TV screen, and they see a lot of other people who have a whole lot. A whole lot, not just of material things, though that's part of it, but also status and respect, all of which the people on this side of the freeway don't have. Now, of course, this is not the way many people normally think of America. We tend to think of ourselves as a land of prosperity, where most people are well off. And it's true, a lot of people are well off, but that's not the whole story, because we have, for an otherwise rich country, that unusually large and severe problem of poverty, an unusually wide gulf between the haves and the haves not. Again, every country does have some poor people, but only a few, outside of underdeveloped nations, have the Comptons, or the inner city Chicago's, or the Oakland's, or the Detroit's. And that has a lot to do with why those countries don't have the crime of the Comptons and the Oaklands and the Detroits. So our problem with poverty is very unusual. And as I've said earlier, it's also very stubborn. The proportion of our population that's officially poor is higher today than it was 35 years ago. And this has a lot to do with why our country is still torn by very high levels of crime, despite all the enormous effort we put into trying to control it. We put massive numbers of people in prison to the point where we, tower over most other advanced societies in the proportion of our population that's behind bars, but they still keep coming. And this unique, huge problem of social exclusion and poverty is part of the reason why. Now, the question is, why? Why is there so much poverty here in this rich nation? And why is it so stubborn? And why doesn't it get better? There are a lot of explanations. One of them became very common in America, especially over the last 30 years. And that explanation has been that it's the welfare system itself that causes poverty, and it's what keeps it so high in America. Now, you might ask, how can that be? After all, the welfare system gives people money. How can it be the cause of poverty? Well, the answer, according to this familiar argument, is that welfare is a kind of trap. 
it does give people some money, but in doing so, it encourages the kind of behavior that keeps people from doing well economically. It encourages people, so some people say, not to work, not to try to better themselves. It encourages having children you can't support because you don't have to support them. Society, the rest of us will. Here's a quote um, that, uh, that many of you guys have heard. Uh, this argument, right, which is that uh, uh, welfare is the reason that people are poor. And there's this broader economic piece of the argument. Not only does the welfare system encourage this kind of bad and ultimately self-defeating behavior among individuals, but it also takes away money, some people say, that we could spend on more productive things in the economy. It uses tax money that we could be investing in businesses, for example. And this argument has been around for a very long time, of course, but it became especially prominent along about the 1980s. Um, there was a book written by uh, Gilder called Wealth and Poverty in the early 1980s. And the quote is, what the poor need most is the spur of their poverty, which was intended to say that it's good for them to feel deprived when they're poor because then they'll try harder to improve themselves. So the worst thing you can do really is help them out too much. And another author, uh, his name is Murray, uh, in the mid-80s, wrote that the poor were losing ground because welfare was holding them back, getting more and more stuck in that destructive welfare culture that discouraged hard work and family values. And these were both hugely successful books back then. They sold hundreds of thousands of copies. And today, many people would agree with these ideals. This idea, this notion that is now become fact for some people is now a very common view of welfare and of poverty generally. You know, I was listening to a talk show the other day, and the guest was saying that this welfare culture was the cause of poverty and the breakdown of the family and a whole lot of other things that were wrong in our society. And this was clearly pretty much taken for granted. Um, the hosts of the show didn't feel the need to explain this position very much, much less tried to prove it. Uh, the person clearly assumed that their listeners would understand and agree. And this idea has driven so much of our social policy towards welfare and poverty for more than 25 years. We based our policy very much on the idea that giving poor people too much money is bad for them and bad for everybody else too. Now, no, we didn't seem to think this was true for banks. Some people think that we really do need to give banks a lot of money and that the economy will collapse if we don't. But for impoverished people, it's a different story, right? And this is much of the underlaying of the, of the arguments that are going around in Congress right now about who to give economic stimulus to and why and what would they do with it if they had it. Is this true, though? Is welfare really a cause of poverty? We've been talking about myths that surround the issue of poverty, and guess what? There are a lot of myths about welfare, too. And as always, it's important to sort out what's true from what isn't. So let's take a look at some realities. Let's start with where our welfare system comes from and what we mean by it. When people talk about welfare or the welfare system, what are they actually talking about? Now, there are a lot of parts to this, lots of pieces to the actually rather complicated system of how we get financial support to people who are impoverished. But the part that most people have in mind when they talk about welfare is our program of cash assistance to low-income families, which is now called TANF, T-A-N-F, which stands for Temporary Assistance to Needy Families. Now, it used to be called AFDC, which was Aid to Families with Dependent Children. It's important to understand that we didn't always have a welfare system in this country, at least not on a national level. This system, welfare, as we usually talk about it, is a child of the 1930s. Now, if you remember, in 1935, we had the Social Security Act uh, was coming on the heels of the Great Depression. Um, the federal government recognized that huge numbers of families needed help. Unemployment was very high. As many as 25% of the workforce were out of work. Is this starting to sound familiar to anybody? <laughs> People were suffering. 
they were going hungry and socially society wide we realized that it wasn't necessarily their fault and something had to be done right so what we implemented implemented was a number of uh, policies and plans where families could get some help but not much and it was mostly local what people often called poor relief the new system originally adc made this a national program at least in part federal government provides some guidelines and some of the money and the states provide the rest but it was left up to the individual states to decide how much money impoverished families would get now the new law created uh, what's often called as an entitlement to support for families in need families without enough other income in other words you have or you had anyway in america a basic right for society to give you at least minimal support if you were in extreme financial need but how much of a right a right to what kind of support exactly well how much support families actually ever got under AFDC varied enormously depending very much for example on the state that they lived in in fact up through the 1960s the most common criticism of welfare was not that it gave people too much money but that it gave them too little welfare was considered by many people to be the scandal not because it was too generous but because in most states you couldn't live on it now welfare was seen as part of a larger scandal the fact that there was so much poverty in a rich country like america and many people felt in the 1950s and 1960s especially that there was something just unacceptable going on here since we were such a rich and prosperous place poverty was unnecessary in america we didn't have to have it we could get rid of it if we wanted to but instead we were needlessly condemning a lot of people including families and kids to poverty and all the other problems that went with it and welfare was part of that scandal we had enough resources to help people live on a decent level but especially in some places like much of the south we were doing that we were giving people peanuts and we were kicking people off welfare at every opportunity so remember the crux of this complaint against welfare was that it wasn't being supportive enough in the 1960s it's often said that we rediscovered poverty in the united states um, another book uh, called the other america written by harrington it's, it's still a very useful book excellent depiction of how things were then for those who were impoverished and one part of that rediscovery was that in some places especially the formal right to support from society was basically a joke and it was a cruel joke kids were still so poor in parts of america that they were going hungry then people got very little by way of welfare benefits and what they could get was easily taken away from them because it was so easy to get kicked off the welfare rules for various reasons again does this sound familiar if we look at places like florida and what they tried to implement and some policies that they have actually implemented and we see this kind of cycle repeating itself right among other things this led to what was often called the welfare rights movement which tried to help poor people get the benefits that they were entitled to by a law and for a while the numbers of poor people were actually getting uh, benefits that started to rise and so in many places did the amount of money that they got because of the help that they were getting and the laws um, that were being written and the rights that were being fought for in the courts and it's at about that time that we begin to hear a different kind of complaint about welfare which is basically the one we often hear now and the complaint now wasn't that welfare was stingy and mean-spirited no 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 it was often too generous so generous in fact that it was counterproductive so keep in mind of the history here right uh we start to uh um, implement laws to divvy out benefits the benefits were largely seen as not enough um uh legal actors started to get involved to make sure that people were getting the rights to the benefits that they were actually entitled to and as they started to get more and we started to make progress against uh poverty then we got a new narrative coming in saying wait a minute that welfare system things they it seems to be a problem right it seems to be keeping people down it's now said that people get so many benefits from government that they could live very well without working so why would they work 
let the rest of us pay their bills. Why should they get married or delay having kids? We're going to pay to support their kids, whether they get married or not, whether they're 16 years old or not. Do these stories sound familiar? Does this sound familiar to, say, for example, um, the stimulus packages that have been debated hotly for the past six months? And what about the kinds of relief packages for people who find themselves uh, losing work or asked to stay home because of the pandemic? And then we were laid on top of that kind of unemployment benefits, extra monies so that people could make ends meet. And what was the argument against that? Well, they're not going to come back to work if we pay them too much, right? And these beliefs led many people to be very resentful of welfare and of the people who received it. But was that really a reasonable criticism? What kind of benefits, for example, were people really getting when they were on welfare, right? You know, I've had a, someone come up to me before and say, you know, <laughs> I enjoyed your talk. But most of what you said was wrong. Um, what you don't understand is that people on welfare can get so much that they don't need the work. Like in Texas, where I'm from, they live, he said, much better than I do. And I work for a living. And I asked him, do you know what the maximum welfare benefit in Texas actually is? And he didn't, but I did. Um, at the time, this was uh, a few years ago, it was $184 a month for a family of three. Max. And Texas was and is very low on the scale when it comes to benefits. But overall, welfare benefits were far lower across the country than most people realize. In 1996, during the Clinton administration, the year we passed a huge welfare, quote, reform law at the federal level that was designed mainly to restrict what was thought to be an overly generous welfare system, or as Bill Clinton said, uh, to change welfare as we know it, right? The average AFDC benefit per recipient was about $139 a month nationally. And for the average family overall, it was $387 a month. Now, recall the official poverty line from the earlier podcast, and you realize this doesn't even come close, right? We're talking about like $5,000 a year for the average family. In some states, including California, it's more, but in many others, it's less. Now, you can get some other benefits as well as your basic AFDC, which was a cash payment. Most importantly, poor families could get food stamps, which supplemented their income for the specific purpose of buying food. But at the time we passed our welfare reform law, in no state of the U.S. did welfare payments alone get a family over the poverty line. And in only two states, Alaska and Hawaii, that the combination of welfare and food stamps raise a family even to the poverty line. And if you remember, the poverty line was a threshold, which basically said, if you don't make this, it's going to be hard to subsist. And in places like Alabama or Texas and many others, families on welfare were light years away from the official poverty line. Texas and other places also found a lot of ways to keep people off welfare altogether. Now, Texas, for example, has about the same population as New York State. But roughly 20 years ago, New York had nearly twice as many children receiving welfare benefits under TANF as Texas did. And that's not because Texas children are less poor than New York's. They're actually poorer. But Texas was, in one way or another, denying benefits to a great many poor families. Now, it may be hard to understand how $184 a month is such a huge sum that it's going to lure people away from working and trying to better themselves. But nevertheless... That idea remains the most popular explanation of why people are poor. And it has, as I said, been the viewpoint that has most influenced our welfare policy in recent decades. Now, when we look at the issue of welfare system and what it actually does, um, through looking at the question of where the U.S. stands internationally with respect to poverty and what's been happening with poverty in this country over the years, 
What we see is that we're really unusual when it comes to our levels of poverty, just as we are with our levels of serious crime. We stick out among the other countries of the advanced world on both counts. We're a rich country, but in many ways, our poverty makes us look more like a third world country than like most other rich countries. And poverty isn't getting better. It's got a lot better since the Second World War in the late 1960s, and then basically it got stuck. So we started asking the question of why this is. Why so much poverty in this country? And why is the amount of poverty so stubborn? And one explanation that we're delving into is that the welfare system causes a lot of the problem right? Well, why? Well, in this view, it's because welfare traps people in a state of dependency on government, as some people would put it. They become dependent on the, quote, public dole. Now, there's no incentive to go out and get a job or improve your skills so you can get a better one and move up in the world. That's the argument, right? There's no incentive to delay having kids or to get married when you do, because we're going to support your kids anyway. Guys, yeah, I was uh, just talking about this actually last week, and I ran into an example of this view um, and I try not to get too involved in politics or crime conversations when I'm at the local supermarket, right? Um, because, uh, you know, or like when I'm, <laughs> when I'm out and about, right? Um, trying to like, if I'm just eating my dinner um, somewhere, I, I don't often go out anymore. You know, we have a couple places we can go outside and eat. I, I tend to kind of stick to myself reading a book. And um, someone kind of leaned over and said, are you a teacher? <laughs> what do you teach? And I said, yeah, you know, I teach about crime. And with about 45 seconds, um, she was basically saying that the problem with crime was that the welfare system had destroyed the family in America and that parents were no longer able to bring up their kids right. And that's why we had so much crime. Now, many, many people believe this. Lots of the public believes this, right? Um, some of my relatives actually complain about welfare all the time. They can hardly talk about anything else. And um, I think that's because since I was a professor, she thought I could do something about it. You know, the, I think my family's members think, you know what? We, we you know, maybe, uh, maybe uh, Dr. Ron can call up the governor and get welfare abolished. <laughs> but it's not just the public, you know. Um, some social scientists have made this kind of argument too. And like many big social issues, how you feel about welfare is partly a philosophical issue. Uh, there's not necessarily a right or a wrong answer as to whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. That's up to the individual to decide based on their own values and beliefs. But to make a thoughtful decision, we need to have some facts in front of us. Now, one of the things um, that we know is that in America, the welfare system is not the most wildly generous system that many people think it is. Um, you often hear people complain about how we've created this huge, expensive, generous welfare state. And again, whether you think it's too generous or not generous enough, um, or just about right, it depends on your own philosophy about these things. But it's important to know that the average benefit under TANF is about $157 a month per recipient. It's much less in some states, though more in others. In Mississippi, it's all of $67. In Alabama, it's $59. In Texas, it's $69 a month. You know, when I <laughs> I had gotten welfare back when I was first started going to college. Um, and after like my first two weeks, um, my benefits were reduced to about five bucks a month. And I said, what am I supposed to do? I went to my, my caseworker. I said, what am I supposed to do with $5 a month? And she said, you can buy a gallon of milk. And I said, have you seen the price of milk lately? Cause I don't actually think that I could have bought a, a gallon of milk at that time. <laughs> I'm trying to think of how much it was. It certainly wasn't enough for the month. Like maybe you can get a gallon of milk, but a gallon of milk doesn't actually last you a whole month. Uh, even just using it for a bowl of cereal each morning. So it was like, ah, what do I do with that? It was a lot of work actually to get down there. 
um, to the uh, office and do all my check-ins. I don't know what the process is now. I imagine that it's probably not easier to get your benefits, even though it might be online. Um, and that assumes access to online, right? So there's just a whole bunch of problems with that uh, scenario. Um, but it, it just became um, obvious to me that it was pointless to keep attempting to receive benefits. So I stopped, uh, which I assume was part of the reason it was set up that way, right? Now, you can combine that money with food stamps and in some cases other benefits, but in almost every state, even the combination of TANF and food stamps still leaves you under the poverty level and in some uh, states way under the poverty level. And now this puts a somewhat different light on this question of the so-called welfare trap, right? It's not immediately clear why $69 a month is going to trap anybody into not getting a job if there is one or why you'd run out and have a bunch of babies you could um, in order to get that 69 bucks, right? That doesn't really seem to logically pan out. But this has nevertheless been the most popular view of welfare in America. And it's the one that's had the most influence on our policies towards support for impoverished people. Now, these ideas stimulated our national reform of the welfare system, which was formalized in the 1996 uh, with the passage of the Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Reconciliation Act, which you'll sometimes hear as PRIORA, P-R-W-O-R-A, the Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Reconciliation Act. That's a mouthful, right? The name of which suggests this line of thinking, right? The problem, of course, uh, you know, to our senators was that people didn't have enough personal responsibility, and that's why they were poor. And the way we had set up the welfare system as an entitlement was partly to blame um, for that lack of personal responsibility. So basically what the reform did was to end that idea, which we'd had since the 1930s, that people had a right to assistance if they hit hard times uh, through no fault of their own and replace that with a strictly limited amount of support that would end over time for almost everybody. So the new law passed by Congress with big support from the Democratic administration contained strict time limits, five years total for a family that could receive TANF benefits. That's the temporary in TANF. Remember, it was switched from AFDC to TANF. Lots of ways to get kicked off those benefits if you didn't take every opportunity to work or otherwise broke the rules, like down in Florida where they were talking about doing drug tests for people who were um, recipients of, of uh, public aid, right? And at least in theory, a lot of help in getting a job. This actually varied enormously between different states. Now, keep in mind that unlike in many other societies, our welfare system is scattered among all 50 states, which all have different rules and standards, right? They're all supposed to follow certain federal guidelines, but there's a huge range in how they do so. So in some states, they provide welfare recipients with fairly generous benefits and also with a lot of real help in gaining the skills and assistance that they needed to get a job, job training, and very importantly, childcare, which is not a right in our society or our culture, right? Uh, it was a stark contrast to um, other advanced industrial societies. In other states, they didn't really do that kind of stuff. For all practical purposes, they just cut people's benefits and told them they get no support unless they took a job. And they made very little effort to train anybody to get a good job. And they just put them to work in what were usually very low wage and often unstable jobs, the kind of jobs that go away when the economy starts to take a downturn in fact, right? So even in the states that did put at least some effort into training people and offering them services, they didn't try very hard to encourage poor people to get high-level skills or the kind of education that would make it likely that they'd get a good job. Basically, the idea was work first. You get them into any kind of job, pretty much whatever job you can do, and off the support system as fast as possible. Now, 
that reform has been in place for quite a few years. Um, it was like 25 years, right? Now, what were the results? And what did those results tell us about the theory that laid behind the reform in the first place? Now, the short answer is that the results show that things were much more complicated than the theory assumed. Of course, why wouldn't they have been, right? Welfare was never really the problem. And just cutting it back is not the solution. The biggest news is that the number of people on welfare did fall very sharply after reform. Think about that for a minute. A lot of people are no longer on welfare shortly after reforms. And so some people say, well, this proves the approach was right all along. That's good. That's what we wanted. We wanted less people on welfare. Is that really accurate though? It depends on how and why they got off welfare, right? And what happened to them once they did. And here's where the picture gets less rosy. First, many, probably the majority of those who left the welfare rolls did not do so because the new law, um, but the economy was improving and that they would have gotten off welfare anyway without having to be pushed off. If you remember the mid-90s, moving on into the early 2000s was a, a, a burst of economic um, uh, uh, activity inside of our country, right? So uh, how many people fit this description? Well, even the researchers who are most supportive of the reform, the ones who wanted to take welfare uh, benefits away, say that maybe 35 to 45% of the decline in welfare recipients was due to the improved economy. So almost half of the people who went off welfare did so because of the growth of the economy, according to the critics of welfare. And others think much more, certainly more than half. And the role of the economy is driven home by the fact that now, when the economy isn't doing well, Far fewer people are leaving welfare, and the ones who are are not getting jobs. And what's happening to them? Well, at worst, if they're leaving because their time limits are up or if they broke some rule, the chances are they're hurting. A large proportion of those families in these tougher economic times are scrambling to get by on hardly any income at all. They're unable to buy food for their kids, and they're really now in some pretty grim straits, which is why in our county um, and multiple counties across the country, we're loading up with food banks and going out and delivering food to impoverished families because we know that they are on hard times and cannot feed themselves or their children, even with the benefits that the meager benefits that they might have been getting up until recently. Um, and that's uh, underscored by the problem of figuring out where some of these people are being housed because they don't have stable housing as well. Remember, these kinds of problems come in clusters. We'll talk more about that as this pod go podcast uh, goes on. But these these problems are not isolated. It's not like you have you know the problem of food insecurity um, without the problem of housing insecurity. So it's really important to kind of understand that and that those things kind of intertwine, and then you are more susceptible for a lot of other reasons, including those to more crime being done to you, right? And so this is how these things come together into what I keep calling this context of crime, right? So a very big proportion of those who got off welfare got off because the economy improved and they just basically need a job in the first place, which oddly enough is what a lot of people had said was the problem before. Now, related to that, a lot of the people who got off welfare and got jobs were what we would call the easy cases, right? People who didn't have big obstacles between them and taking a job, if there was a job for them to take. But many people on welfare did have big obstacles, and that's a really important point, right? Because again, um, that's something that many people who knew something about poverty had always pointed out. Um, they, we, me, right, said, look, it's not that people are lazy and don't want to work. It's that A, there aren't enough jobs for them. 
especially if they don't have any skills, and B, they often had some pretty big barriers in the way of working in normal jobs. Maybe they have a disability or they're in poor health, or maybe their kid was in poor health. Maybe they're struggling with addiction or a mental health problem. In any case, getting these people into jobs wasn't just a matter of cutting off their benefits and forcing them into the workforce. You'd have to actually do something about those problems first. And in fact, for some people, the problems like health problems might mean that they need help permanently. And many people said, hey, a lot of what we lump together as the welfare population fit into this exact profile. People who are hard cases, people who, who need extra support other than just monetary kinds of support and financial and food kinds of things. There's other kinds of soft skills that they might be lacking and other kinds of um, uh, either disabilities or barriers to entering the workforce. So just getting tough on these people isn't going to solve this problem. And the results of the welfare reform of 1996 show that these views were right from the get-go because people with very serious health or mental health problems have been the hardest to get off the welfare rolls and the least likely to get a steady job if they do. Now, if they get kicked off welfare, which happens often, they also are the ones who have the most trouble finding any source of regular income and who suffer the most serious problems as a result, including having even more health problems. And then there's this question of what actually helped them to get a job after welfare if they did get a job after welfare. After all, it's very hard to feel very excited about how wonderful this welfare reform was if all it did was to throw people onto the street to beg. And in fact, it often has done that depending on the particular state. And in some states, they didn't do much to help people get the habits and skills and services that would help them get a job. So they either just lucked into one or they just bumped off welfare and had to find some kind of income any way they could, including, by the way, illegal ways. Now, in other states, they tried pretty hard to prepare people for jobs and to offer the basic services, especially childcare, that would make it practical and realistic to have them take regular jobs, and equally important to be able to keep them. Again, that's after all what many people had said was wrong before we started pushing the idea that welfare itself wasn't the problem. A lot of people said, no, it's not that people don't want to work, but that, for example, if you're a single parent with two little kids and you have no safe place to put those kids, you can't take a regular job. So why don't we provide more childcare for people if we want them to work? But we didn't do that for the most part. With the passage of Priora, some states did begin taking money and providing childcare for the first time. And presto, all kinds of single parents wound up in the workforce. Every study that's been done on who succeeds in getting jobs and better earnings after leaving welfare shows that childcare is hugely important and that the people who get it reliably as part of their package of services do much better than those who don't. It seems pretty obvious, right? But now this raises an even larger question about welfare reform and, by implication, about the ideas behind it. The idea that welfare was responsible for our stubborn poverty problem. Because all we've said so far is that, especially given a booming economy and a lot of social supports, many of the better prepared people with fewer problems can get off welfare. But we haven't said that they stop being poor. And guess what? They haven't, which shouldn't be surprising if we think about the recent trends in poverty for a minute. We've seen from the beginning that the rates of poverty haven't changed much in America for a long time. They're actually a little worse than they were 30 years ago. So we've greatly reduced the number of people on the welfare rules, but we haven't reduced poverty. I'll repeat that for a second. We've greatly reduced the number of people who are taking welfare, but we haven't done much in terms of reducing poverty itself, right? And that would seem to tell us, at least on the surface, that welfare wasn't the problem. At least when it comes to explaining why people are poor and why they stay impoverished. We did everything that they said we should do to cut back welfare and replace it with work. 
But looking at the big picture, it's clear that doing so didn't bring down the poverty rate in the United States. Well, why not? Well, obviously, for the people who got kicked off welfare but didn't get a job, there's, of course, no reason to believe that they would be less poor as a result, right? Quite the opposite. Now, they wouldn't have any stable source of income at all unless they managed to come up with a stable source of illegal income, which they might, in fact, go do, which now brings us back to the, uh, the some of the connectivity between this poverty conundrum and what happens in uh, you know, the illicit drug trade in particular. So just kicking people off of welfare is not going to help the poverty problem. That seems like a no brainer, but actually a lot of people somehow sort of thought it would back in the day, or at least that was what their rhetoric was. It helps the welfare problem, of course, right? That is if what you're really worried about is not whether people are poor or not, but that there are people on welfare and getting money from the rest of us without necessarily having to work for it. If that's your primary concern, then just throwing people off of welfare solves the problem, but it aggravates the poverty problem. You see, tossing people off of welfare certainly reduces the number of people on welfare. That's a truism, but it aggravates the poverty problem. It makes it worse. That's what the data have been showing us for decades now. But what about those who left welfare and did get jobs? And here's the other part of the problem. In a way, it maybe is the biggest part. It turns out that most of them didn't get jobs that paid enough wages to lift them above the poverty line. That is, they got a job, but especially because of the emphasis on work first, they mostly, with some exceptions, got low-wage jobs, poverty wage jobs. And that was true even for those who did get childcare and other support services that helped them get into jobs, and more so for those who got less of that. There's a Michigan study that found among women who got TANF benefits in 1997, four years later, only one-fourth were working in what the study defined as, quote, good jobs. And by good jobs, they meant full-time jobs that paid at least $7 an hour 20 years ago in 2001 and offered health insurance or $8.50 an hour without health insurance. Those were good jobs that only a quarter of these women got after they left welfare. And a little math shows you that they didn't get out of poverty. Now, the studies have since shown that anywhere from 50 to more than 75% of people who leave welfare under TANF are still poor two to three years after leaving the welfare rules. Now, that doesn't mean that the other 25 to 50% got out of poverty because of welfare reform because many would have gotten out anyway. Remember that number from welfare critics, the most harshest ones who are telling us that welfare shouldn't be around are telling us that upwards of somewhere between 35 to 45% of the people who left welfare left so because of the economy and not because welfare was taken away. Moreover, even if they bump up above the official poverty line, the vast majority of former TANF recipients stay pretty close to it. They remain among the, quote, near poor that I was talking about in earlier podcasts. They may be out of the official poverty category. Remember that threshold? You step out of the door and you're outside. You step back in, you're inside, right? Um, but as we saw back in the beginning, that doesn't mean they're doing well. And they're very vulnerable to slipping back below that official line. Now, quite a few are doing that right now or as the economy has gotten stuck. Now, it's clear that if you can quite easily get people off welfare, there's nothing hard about that, right? You can do all kinds of you know, monkey business with the rules and regulations. And it's also clear that in doing so, we haven't gotten them out of poverty. Now, welfare reform, again, 
could partly solve the welfare problem if we thought that, in fact, welfare was the problem, right? If welfare is, in fact, the source of the problem, doing away with welfare solves that problem. It's a very truncated way of looking at what we're talking about. Because it has little to do with solving the poverty problem. In fact, it may have exacerbated it. Because it both keeps cash benefits low while people are on welfare, and it stops those benefits rigidly on the theory that doing so will push people into jobs. But then it pushes people into a job market that in fact cannot offer them a standard of living that's above the poverty level. And so this begins to show us the real explanation of why our poverty in America is so stubborn. And also gives us a hint as to why it's worse here than in those advanced societies. It's not because under our misguided welfare policies we give people too much money. No, that's not true. It is first because we actually give them too little money if they don't work or can't work. And if they do work, we pay them too little. And that points us right to the question of what's happening to our jobs in recent years, which is what we'll talk about in our next podcast.